I would love to have you take your Bibles with that and uh, join me in Matthew chapter 7. Thank you for letting me take the time to do that. I think it's important for us as a church to know what's going on with those things. But Matthew chapter 7, we will find ourselves today in our fourth visit to the Sermon on the Mount, uh, coming to chapter 7, 1 through 12 is where we're going to be. A very familiar, well, at least part of it, very, very familiar. Oh, my goodness sakes. Uh, If you are a guest here, perhaps you have visited our Welcome Center. If you have, if you've picked up the little welcome packet, then you were given your own copy of this very cool little book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness by Tim Keller. It's little, it's a little tiny thing, it's an easy read, but it's, it's about our topic this morning. It's about humility. It really is. As, com- as opposed, contrasted with pride. And may I say, I'm happy to speak about something like pride and humility, which I think is the unifying theme in today's text. Happy to preach about it because, folks, f- honestly, to be human, to be human is to struggle with pride. If I were to ask anybody who knows you to be gentle, but to be truthful, (laughs) if they were to speak honestly about you and you were to speak honestly about them, there are all areas where we struggle with pride. There just is. It's just the way it is. To To be human is to struggle with pride. It doesn't mean there's something remarkably wrong with you. It just means you're breathing, okay? Now... Uh, Keller mentions a number of things here in this little book about self-forgetfulness. That's his term for humility. So when he uses self-forgetfulness, he's defining something about humility. I'm going to read just a couple of elements here that I think will lead us to the text. But he, he says, gospel humility is not needing to think about myself. It's not needing to connect everything to me. It is an end to thoughts such as, I'm in this room with these people. Does that make me look good? Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means that I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with me. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. True gospel humility means an ego that is not puffed up, but filled up. This is totally unique. Are we talking about someone with high self-esteem? commonly used term. He says, no. Am I talking about low self-esteem? Certainly not. He says, it's not about what we commonly call self-esteem. Skipping on down. A truly gospel humble person is not a self-hating person or a self-loving person, but a gospel humble person. A truly gospel humble person is a self-forgetful person whose ego is just like his or her Toes. His point being, you weren't thinking about them until I just said it. Now you're all wiggling them to see if they're that. I have toes. But you weren't thinking about them 30 seconds ago. And that's his point. Thinking about, not thinking less about yourself, but thinking about yourself less. Interestingly, he would take issue with our common understanding of uh, self-esteem in those conversations that go there. He would suggest, as would other gospel-oriented writers, that someone with what we call low self-esteem, biblically, struggles with pride, which is thinking about yourself too much, even if you think poorly about yourself. Biblically, that would fall into the sin of pride. You'd say, well, how can that be? They have such a poor opinion of themselves. 
Well, Keller and many others would say, yes, and that's an evidence of pride. You think about yourself all the time. Even if you think poorly about yourself, you're thinking about you all the time, which is called pride. Oh, my. You struggle with pride? Careful. No amens necessary. Uh, I want to pray for us, and we'll get into the text and hear what Jesus has to say. Father, thank you so much for your word. I pray that you'd give us wisdom during the time that we have today as we listen to the words of our Savior Jesus as he tells us what it looks like to be a humble person. So help us now, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you look at your study sheet, you see several things. I've broken this text down into three categories, all of which have the word should in them. Followers of Jesus should. I realize that in some settings, in some uh, uh, to some writers and so on, that speaking with shoulds is very bad form. I, I understand. It lends itself toward guilt. Sorry. <laughs> I went there anyway. Three shoulds. Followers of Jesus should. We should what? We should be humble. We should be discerning. We should be prayerful. I think all of those uh, speak something about humility. Now, verses 1 through 5 then. I want to read the text, but I want you to keep your eye on this because this is a very famous text today, one that gets a lot of attention right after John 3.16. I think Matthew 7.1 is the most quoted text in America today. And here is what Jesus says, jumping in the middle of this sermon. Uh, he says this, Matthew 7.1, judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? And how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample you underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, Jesus, of course, goes on. A text we'll work on in two weeks. Next week, taking a break for Thanksgiving. But these 12 verses, I think, unify around the theme of humility. Humility in how we react to people, how we interact with people, and humility in how we interact with God. Verse 1, of course, judge not that you be not judged. Doesn't everybody in America know this verse? But let me say this. It is also, in its application, a dramatically misunderstood verse, even by, maybe especially by, people who are followers of Jesus. Uh, in fact, the idea of not judging is so instilled in us as, as, as a big value that, my goodness sakes, we would rather be guilty of about anything today than judging. 
You don't judge. Oh, my goodness sakes, to be thought of as a judgmental person is awful. It's a sin right up there next to capital murder of some sort. But uh, to listen to people talk today, don't judge, don't judge. And consequently, by misunderstanding the words of Jesus, people end up keeping their mouth shut when they should speak up, uh, reserving opinions when there should be an opinion expressed, and the idea being, listen, I just don't want to judge. Even God's people are afraid of speaking God's truth because they are afraid of being accused of violating Matthew 7, 1. Exactly. We don't want, I don't want to be judgmental. We say, oh, we, we think we're going to help by adding in my humble opinion before our, you know, in my humble opinion, I think that was probably sinful, but I, who am I to say? Wow, we're running scared of the wrong thing. So I want, to, I want to look at this today. It's about humility, yes, how we interact with people. But what did Jesus mean? He meant something. And what did he not mean? He didn't mean a number of things, okay? So I, I'm, gonna, I'm not intending to drain everything that could be said about this, but I have three comments about what he meant, three comments about what he didn't mean, all right? And I hope it will clear a little bit of the fog about what Jesus meant. So under the category of what did Jesus mean by what he, when he said do not judge, I think these three stand out in the text. First of all, don't rush, don't rush to judgment. Don't have a judgmental spirit. Now, that's a, a little different element. I could have made that a fourth point, but I didn't. Don't rush to judgment. In pride, we are often too quick to notice flaws or sin in, the, in others. We're too quick to assume. We live in a day, listen, when, when after a sound bite, either spoken in, uh, or, or in print media, we quickly decide we know. Don't we? Come on. You do it too. A little bit of information, we go, okay, I see what's going on. When in reality, based on one little soundbite, we actually know very little about what's going on. I'm saying we can be too quick to draw conclusions many times on partial evidence. I'm not going to give contemporary examples from media because I'm less concerned about how we interact with media and more concerned about how we interact with people who are around us. But I think we do this with people too. I see this, I hear this, I looked at that, and I know what's going on. And I think Jesus is slowing us down here a little bit. Hey, hold on. Before you pronounce judgment, my goodness sakes, you, it uses the term pronounce as it's uh, translated in the ESV with the judgment you pronounce. And clearly, we're heading into this discussion of logs and specks. In other words, before you've even dealt with your own heart, you've already pronounced things. You've hurried up and made decisions on, on very little information. So I think one thing about this don't judge thing that he does in fact mean is don't rush to draw conclusions. Don't, don't just charge in there and think you know too quickly. And may I say on the judgmental spirit part, this is where I think a lot of Christians get into trouble is they may be correct in what they say, but they say it with such a judgmental spirit that people can't hear you. You know what I'm talking about here? Where you may be, you may be correct that is, in saying something that is Bible true, but you have such a snotty, arrogant attitude, it turns people off. How about that? Was that clear? Yeah. I think many times, in order for someone to hear us, there needs to be humility and kindness and love before they can hear what is said. So before you say, well, I'm just suffering for Jesus, 
You know, people just don't like hearing the truth. You might stop and ask yourself, is it the truth they don't like or is it me? And it could very well be that they just don't like you because of how condescending you are and how you speak to them. So think about this a little bit, people of God, right? So don't rush to judgment, that's correct. And don't have a judgmental spirit. Now, I also believe Jesus is saying, check your own heart before you address others. And I, I, I'm gonna take several different uh, approaches to that last line in verse five, where Jesus says, then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. We'll talk more about that element, the log and the speck in a minute. But he is, he is, he is encouraging you to check your own heart before. He's not saying don't address other people on things, but saying check your own heart before you do. The last line suggests that there is a time to address certain things. Then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He's saying before you address somebody else on something, um, you might want to look in the mirror first and see if you have some things to address. Now, part of this, of course, is the log and the speck uh, discussion. Jesus uses that for three verses. And he's intending this to be somewhat humorous, or at least to get your attention. Uh, a speck, a little piece of sawdust in a person's eye is quite irritating. But let's talk about a log stuck in there on somebody's eye. A, a log, quick, you can have a log stuck in somebody's eye. Well, the best analogy I could find, it quickly jumped into my mind. I, I've, I've been through several uh, first aid classes over the years. And You've been to some of the same ones that I have. I don't know the book they use today. I'm overdue to get my first aid card uh, re, re, um, uh, re-upped. But I remember the, one of the books we used a number of times, you know, walking you through different scenarios. Here's what you do with a broken leg. Here's how you make a splint. And, and then you turn the page, and there's this thing about somebody whose eye has a, like a pencil in it. I know. I, I Stop talking about it. It's awful. You look at the picture. You turn the page right away. You go, oh, next page. It's terrible. Whoever the artist was who drew this thing, it's awful. I just right away go, oh, towel over your head, 911. That's all I got. But they're, they're describing what to do if something is impaled in a person's eye. And Jesus, again, he's intending to kind of get your attention. If someone actually had an item impaled in their eye and doesn't notice, what does everyone else see? They all see it, friend, but maybe you don't. Does this start to hit close to home? How many times is it that everybody else knows something, maybe about us? Maybe they see our abrasive, caustic spirit. Maybe they see our judgmental attitude. And I, I, I'm so close to it, I just think I'm being this, you know, just enthusiastic Christian. And other people see, and I don't. I'm busy walking around going, you, you have a little speck in your eye there, friend. Can I help you? And as I swing around to help, I about take their head off. And sometimes we do about take their head off. So Jesus does mean something by this, that it's possible to have such a, a glaring problem yourself that, first of all, you're not in a place to correct others, have such a glaring problem, everybody around you can see it. But for whatever reason, you're blinded to it. And okay, this is a text on humility, isn't it? That if maybe if you find it real easy to notice everybody everybody else around me is so messed up, I have a lot of work to do. This is addressed to us who think like that. To say, hey, slow down, friend. 
Take a good look in the mirror and maybe have somebody who loves you help you think about you for a minute. If you're that good at seeing how everybody else is so messed up, maybe there's something going on in you that needs to be adjusted. Does anybody love you and they can help you with this? But if all we can see is everybody else's problems, oh boy, um, there may be a bigger problem with me. And I think that's really what Jesus is talking about. Now, my, my third little element there, uh, know that knowing the difference between big things and small things, being willing to let small things go, uh, spec versus log, spec versus log. Um, there, now, there are idiosyncrasies about people that should be let go. Isn't that right? You can't fix everybody who puts their coffee cup on the counter in the wrong space. They, they, the handle should go, oh, dear. Um, you can't spend your life doing that. I think in the context, we are talking more about sin issues. But listen, uh, every time you see somebody with an area of sin, there, there is an importance of, of knowing the difference between addressable and letting things go. I was having a conversation with this after second hour. Boy, this is a good conversation. How do you know the difference? And do you ever just let sin go? And I mean, my goodness sakes, sin. And there's a part of me that wants to say, well, of course, no. I mean, you know, let things go. But on the other hand, those of you who are married, do you ever see little elements of sin in your spouse? Careful, careful, careful. Do you address them all? No, because you spend your entire married life pointing out the other person's flaws and them you. Now, there are areas of, let's just say, there are areas of sin where you say, honey, do you notice? There are times that you do address that. But are there not many more? You say, well, it is sin. But you're going to call them all out? Because I sin a lot, right? As do you. Well, these are interesting things to think about. But in the text, when Jesus says, don't judge, I think there are some things that he is cautioning against. Don't rush to judgment. Don't have a judgmental spirit. Don't be an irritating person. Check your own heart before you address others. Knowing the difference between the addressable and the, you know, let it go and let God handle that. Now, at the same time, I want to say here, three things Jesus does not mean, lest we run scared on the other side. Okay, look at this on your study sheet. What did Jesus not mean? Well, I don't think Jesus meant that right and wrong don't matter as categories. That's not what he's saying. Well, don't judge. No, no. The Bible says things are right and wrong. So God calls it out. He isn't saying right and wrong don't matter. He's not saying that right and wrong are simply personal categories. We sometimes hear that. Well, to me, people say, to me, that's wrong. May I just say, I'll say it delicately, who cares what you think? Was that delicate? Um, do you care more about what God says? Yeah, nobody really cares what you think, if it's just what you think. But if God says something is wrong, then listen, you can say it's wrong too. Not based on your authority, on God's. You can say something is right, not based on you. Who cares what you think, right? You can say something is right because God says something is right. So if the content of your statement is true to God's word, then for you to announce it or to use that and refer to something as right or wrong, that's not judgmentalism on your part, assuming your attitude is right. So a Christian who says, but wait, that's wrong. That doesn't mean that person is judging. Hopefully they'll present it right. 
So if somebody says back to you, hey, 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 don't judge, then you might want to talk about what do you mean by judging, okay? Because, I mean, my goodness sakes, we all know the importance of calling out certain categories in very right and wrong uh, ways. Let me give you a, a little example. Those of you who have had the dubious pleasure of teaching someone else to drive, there are certain things that you, non-judgmental as you are, are extremely dogmatic about. Okay? I don't care how sensitive you are to everybody's feeling and how you don't want to hurt everybody. And you're just going to be all gentle in, in my humble opinion. But let me tell you, you're going to drive down and there's this red sign that says stop. What are you going to say to your fledgling driver? Yeah, you're not going to say, well, you know, honey, in, in my opinion, you might consider, I mean, who am I to say I mean, I don't want to impose on you my evaluation of this. I mean, come on. I mean, different ways of reading that. No, you're going to say, okay, we're coming to a stop sign. You can start stepping on the brake. Stop now if they're edging it out. No, you're going to be extremely black and white and dogmatic, you judgmental person. But you're going to call it out based on a law that's bigger than you. Isn't that right? And you're not going to be afraid to say, uh, 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 stop the car. Because you're confident in the law. You didn't make it up. You, you, you're telling this new driver their rights and wrongs. Here's how you'll live longer and come home at night. Stop the car. That's what you do. Nobody looks at you and says, boy, you're judgmental. No. Well, you get my point. Uh, Jesus does not mean, I'm on the other page now. He does not mean that, there, that there's sin that shouldn't be confronted. That's not the point. And if, again, if somebody says, hey, don't be judging now, he's not, no, you misunderstood Jesus. He's not saying you can't address things. There, you know, he, again, he says the end of verse five, once you deal with that log in your own eye, you'll be able to help somebody, but get the speck out of their eye. So there is a time and a place to address sin. Now I go to that third and final one. Uh, Jesus did not mean that all judgment, all judgment should be set aside. And uh, we're stepping into the next category here, though I separated them into that category of discernment, but staying right there for a minute. If you look at Matthew 7, uh, same, same context of Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in verse 15, well, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. How about that? Verse 20, you'll recognize them by their fruits. What does Jesus want you to be here? Uh, yeah, in the right sense, judgmental. I don't mean like a critical spirit necessarily and, you know, snotty attitude. I don't mean that. But he means that you're supposed to be a fruit inspector. Judgmental in the right biblical sense. You are called to do that. In 1 Corinthians 5, you remember back to our sermon series on 1 Corinthians. In chapter 5, we find the Apostle Paul addressing a big deal. It's a church discipline situation. Sometimes in addressing things in a church, yes, in fact, you have people saying, hey, who are we to judge? Well, the Apostle Paul didn't get the memo because he was addressing a well-known, everybody knows it, issue of immorality in the church. And everybody's saying, just give him a hug. And the Apostle Paul says, actually, no, that per that's that's a sinful situation, and give him a hug. That's the wrong deal today. Somebody needs to say, and, and give him a hug, and now you guys knock it off. And that's what the Apostle Paul says. No, 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 this is not okay. So it isn't judgmental 
then church, to exercise church discipline. It isn't judgmental in this case to call sin, sin, and it's not judgmental to say, and knock it off. So that's not what Jesus is meaning. Galatians 2 is, a, is another personal example. This is the story of Peter and Paul. Peter, having heard the gospel, Apostle Peter, he's got this. He's, he's, he knows that he can now hang out with Gentiles and Jews, and he's doing that freely until this Jewish crowd shows up from Jerusalem, and all of a sudden he moves from the Gentile table, he moves over to the Jewish table. And the Apostle Paul goes, uh, 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 that's not the gospel. And he calls him out publicly because what he did was, was public. And you find a confrontation. I said this to his face, Paul says, Galatians 2. I spoke to his face and I said, Peter, how can you, how can you call yourself a, a good apostle, brother? Because <laughs> you're being a hypocrite right here, right? He calls it, is that, being, is that violating the words of Jesus? Well, no, it's not. Because see, there's a public sin and Paul comes along and says, brother, brother, that's wrong. Don't do that. So again, when I, we, we, we quote Matthew 7, 1, judge not, we run scared of, uh, so scared of violating this that we, we are afraid to, to address sin. We're afraid to comment on right and wrong. And I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind. Now, if you want to step more into this, and again, this touches on our next category, discernment. This is a great little book. I've recommended this to you before, but those of you who are readers about such things, The Discipline of Spiritual Discernment. And it, as, a, as a whole book, <clears throat> wonderful book, Tim Challey's about 10 years old in the book. Um, he, he, he deals with this big issue of the difference between judging and discerning, what it looks like, what you need to be a discerning person in an age of error. And in the middle of the book, there's this big section on things that Christians must judge. And the Bible gives a lot, and it uses the same term. You are to judge the spirits. You are to judge the times. There is a right place to judge leaders. There's a right place to judge what you're taught. The same term is used. So anyway, don't judge. That is the personal issues. Don't judge as in your bad attitude. Don't do that. But be a person who speaks truth. Verse 6, discernment. This, this is pretty short. It's one verse. Jesus uh, uses this phrase. I think he does so in a proverbial sense. Don't give dogs what's holy. Don't throw your pearls before swine. I think those two phrases mean the same thing. Uh, in a similar pattern to the Proverbs in the Old Testament, there are different forms in the Proverbs. Some are antithetical, meaning the first line and the second line contrast. And some Proverbs, you'll have two lines where they say the same thing in different words. And I think Jesus is using a well-known proverbial uh, form here. Don't give dogs what's holy. Dogs and pigs, both in that culture, unclean animals. He's not talking about your little fluffy at home. People rarely had little fluffies at home back in the day. Uh, when you talk about dogs in the Bible, typically those were, those were like packs of dogs running through your neighborhood, um, you know, out of control. So few people had, in that Jewish culture, had dogs as pets. So he's not talking about little, you know, your cute little animal at home. Don't give dogs, unclean animals, what's holy. Don't throw your pearls uh, before pigs, unclean animals. It, who's he talking about as pigs and dogs? Careful, careful, careful. Actually, I don't think he's talking about anybody. I think he means woof, woof, and oink, oink. I think he's talking about the animals. And before you say, well, I think he means, uh, 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 
I know that in Jewish times, there were times that people spoke about the Gentiles as Gentile dogs. I don't think that's what Jesus is doing here. I think, if you look at your study sheet, that this is what he's saying. First of all, I think he means discipline, or sorry, discernment rather, means that we recognize things that are truly valuable and we treat them as such. That would include issues of truth. Okay? Don't give dogs what's holy. There are things that you don't give. You don't give. You treat them as valuable. You don't give them to dogs or pigs. The things that are valuable. And secondly, that you recognize the consequences of failing to protect valuable things. Valuable people. Valuable relationships. So I I think that that's what he's talking about. Followers of Jesus should be humble. They should be discerning. They should know the things that are important and protect them. Um, That includes truth. It includes people. It includes standards that are important. I think there are things when the people of God should speak up. Yes, absolutely, in a right way and with the right tone of voice. And there are times to speak up. I, I still get the newspaper some of you uh, long since quit doing that. But I often will browse the letters to the editor. And I, I am always happy when I see a Christian address something important. And sad when I see a Christian use their one, that you can write a letter to the editor and have it be published once a month, if I understand right. And I'm sad when Christians use that to speak about something that in a big scheme of things doesn't matter at all. You really want to do that? You want to use your one time to complain about fireworks being too loud? That's it? I mean, that may be a big deal to you, but in in the whole scope of eternity, that's what you want to put your name on? Seriously? Is that all you have to talk about? Uh, Again, I'm not picking on you for fireworks, and none of you have done that to my knowledge, but but I've often shaken my head and said, man, you, you got one shot, and that's what you said. My goodness, say something valuable. Here's a chance. I think it's true in social media, too. You've heard me address this before. How much stuff do we... Uh, like or forward or whatever you go seriously you have you're going to be characterized by what you what you post you really want to make that your deal when i think of you i think about don't you want it to be valuable stuff that'll send somebody to heaven rather than just irritate half the world anyway i they may be important topics i just think we've got to be careful and i think that's verse six discernment discernment man being careful what's what's really valuable in your world what do you want to have characterize your life at the end of the day when people talk about what matters to you what do you want them to talk about let me tell you something i'd suggest that you have it be stuff that matters for eternity and getting people to heaven and a whole lot of other things you say jay has opinions on that and i will never share them because it doesn't matter to me that much okay let it go well i think that's discernment Uh, discernment and humility i say here are friends not enemies and you read the rest of my statement. Verses 7 through 11, really. I know um, the golden rule, verse 12, much quoted, a proverb in Jesus' day, well-known. Uh, Jesus is not creating that. He's repeating something that was already well-known in culture. But my comments really on verses 7 through 11 are about prayer. I believe here, in keeping with the theme of humility, that humility is manifested by a prayerful life, and a prayerless life is an evidence of pride. I'll let you think about that a little bit. I think a prayerless life is an evidence of pride. It says, hey, I've got this. I don't really need God's wisdom. It's really not that important. I don't have to discuss it with God. I've got this. I think it's an evidence of pride. I'm so busy. The stuff I'm doing is so important. I really don't have time to talk to God about that. But really, I've got it. Oh, you do. Oh, you do. Now, 
Jesus says then in verse 7, ask, seek, and knock. And similar to verse 6 being uh, the phrases are similar to one another, I think the phrases here are similar rather than different. I think ask, seek, and knock have great commonality because they place you before God in a right posture. That is, as one in need, one coming to ask, to request You're placing yourself before an all-wise God in a posture that says, I don't know it all, I don't have it all, and I'm not here to tell you what to do, God. I'm here to ask. I'm here to seek. I'm here to knock. So sometimes I think in our prayers, we perhaps take the I'm here to counsel God approach. And I think it's okay to pray and say, God, here's, here's what I'm asking um, but I think in our hearts, we should always be very careful about seeing ourselves as God in heaven going, oh, for goodness sakes, I never thought of that. Thank you so much for that recommendation. I never would have thought of that. Anyway, we'd be careful. We come with an asking heart and a seeking heart and a knocking approach to God who knows and really doesn't need our suggestions. But the posture before God, I think, is really important. We come to a wise father who has the resources and ability to meet our needs. Now, this text verses 7 and 8, are often question, bring questions, don't they? I've prayed, I've asked, I've sought, I've knocked. And it does say here that if you ask, you receive. And so why didn't I? And I believe verses 9 through 11 help us understand that a bit more. What is Jesus meaning here? Is he meaning, in verse 8, if you ask, you'll receive exactly what you ask for? Is that, is that, that's the way we'd like to take it. But is that what Jesus meant? And I would suggest he defines himself a bit more. And I want to read a paragraph from another pastor who's talking about this same text because he says it with a precision that I think I would struggle to, to capture. So he asks here, does this mean that everything a child of God asks for, he gets? He says, I think the context here is sufficient to answer the question. no. We do not get everything we ask for, and we should not, and we would not want to. Think about that. The reason I say we should not is because we would, in effect, become God if God did everything we asked him to. We should not be God. God should be God. And the reason I say that we would not want to get everything we asked is because we would then have to bear the burden of infinite wisdom, which we do not have. We simply don't know enough to infallibly decide how every decision will turn out and what the next events in our lives, let alone in history, should be. Do you really know what's best for this country? Do you? How much do you know about 10 years from now? Okay, nothing. And yet we sometimes pray like we do. Huh. Let me ask you. There's another little part I'm going to read here in a moment. Have you ever prayed for something and in retrospect became grateful that God didn't give it to you? Has that ever happened? I wanted this. I prayed for that. And God didn't give it. And now, later on, I am so glad. It would have ruined my life had he given me what I was so sure I needed. This is a call, uh, not for indecision in prayer, it's a call for humility, which is the point of the text. It's a call for humility. Now, this writer again, 
The reason I say we don't get all we ask is because the text implies this. Jesus says in verses 9 and 10, a good father won't give his child a stone if he asks for bread, won't give him a serpent if he asks for a fish. This prompts us to ask, what if a child asks for a serpent? Well, a good father will say no and give what is truly good. And the point I think this writer would say, and I think that's the point of Jesus, even as I pray and I ask to know that my Father in heaven is good, truly good. He'll hear my need. He'll hear my request. He knows my need. And he'll give me what is truly good. Maybe not what I thought I wanted, but what is truly good, which is what you want anyway. I want to go to that section called response to God's word. There are just two brief things. One, I have a question there for you, and I'm wanting to know if you'll do this. Are you willing to ask God today if there's an area in your life right now in which pride, that is that assurance that you so, you're so right and so smart because, my goodness sakes, you just know things. Uh, is there an area in which pride right now is messing up your life? And are you willing to ask God to show it to you so that you'll repent of it? Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's in some other relationship, relationship with your kids or your parents. Maybe there's some area where pride, I don't mean somebody else's, I mean yours. Is there an area where pride is a problem for you? Because you know, after all, you do, right? Maybe today, are you willing to ask God to show it to you and to humble your proud heart so that you'll repent? Are you willing to do that? Be careful if you say yes. Be careful if you ask that of God because he just may show you. And then second, how do you cultivate humility? How do you do it? Well, I believe the best way is through the gospel. Is you come to Jesus. You come to the cross of Christ. No one can stand for too long all puffed up and proud in front of the cross of Christ. You come in all sure you're so smart and right. You stand before the cross of Christ and remember your sin put him there. The cross is not a testament to how great you are. No matter what they say on the radio. It's a testament to how great Christ is and how deep your need is for him. That's what it is. John Stott, this wonderful book on the gospel, it's called The Cross of Christ. It's a classic. If you ever want to read one theology book, this is the one, okay? It's a book, a Theology of the Cross. It's a theology book. It's not a novel, but, but it's, it's solid. And he takes you step by step to the cross. Even in the introduction, he says, far from offering us flattery, the cross undermines our self-righteousness. Oh, man. Yeah, it's true. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you today for your word. Thank you for these words of Jesus. Oh, we long to be humble people, and yet we struggle to be such. Our hearts cry out for attention to ourselves, to have the spotlight on us. Really, even though we say it's not true, we, we want certain things. We want certain things of others. And we're pretty sure that we know. No, Father, would you humble our proud, proud hearts. We'd rush less quickly to judgment, more sure to pronounce your truth, but in a way that's right. And Father, I pray today that Christ would be lifted up in our estimation, our awareness, and that before Christ, his death on the cross for our sin, that indeed you would pour contempt on all our pride. Undo us before the cross of Jesus. 
that Christ would be all than that I would be less. Father, do this through the gospel, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Good to see you this morning, and we'll see you again very, very soon.